Man, June is a mixed bag. Brian preached uh, last week. Um, I've got today, and Adam's going to be preaching the next two Sundays uh, after today. And we just finished a series in the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up on a new series in July with the book of Numbers. So in the meantime, um, we're preaching on different topics, and I'm excited to preach this morning from Ephesians 3. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 14. We're going to read through 21. This should sound familiar uh, because um, the sermon I'm preaching this morning was supposed to be part two of a two-part sermon series that I was supposed to do in January. But if you remember um, that second Sunday in January, the the great winter storm of 2017 came through Greenville, and we actually didn't have church that Sunday morning, uh, so I didn't get to do part part B. So that's what this morning is, hence the sermon title. That's not a typo. That's about as wild and crazy as we get with the sermon titles here in the uh, Presbyterian Church of America. So enjoy it. Um, and if I could summarize uh, these two sermons this way, again, just kind of as a refresher, because it's, it's been five months since we've addressed this passage. Here's how I would summarize it in two sentences. Sermon one was God's uh, strength um, comes from outside of us. In other words, Christians' source of strength, their energy comes from God. Our energy, our power source is not within ourselves. God has to give it to us. God is our strength. Part B or part two, I would say, is this. Is that strength that comes from outside of us has to work its way inside of us. So Christian strength comes from outside of us, comes from God. But this strength has to work itself out inside of us, in our very inner man. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's, let's look at this together. Let's look at the inner man. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the bulletin as well. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You, O Lord, who are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was recently reading a story about a seminary professor who, at the beginning of the fall semester, he asked all of his students, this is the very first thing he did, a very, very simple yes or no question. It was written on a small piece of paper, and it said circle one, circle yes, or circle no. The question was this, do you believe that you are loved by God? Do you believe that God loves you? Yes or no? 
And if you're like me, you're assuming that, well, if these are seminary students they're, they're, and they're being trained for gospel ministry, they're being trained to teach and preach about God's love, surely if there's any group in the world that would circle yes, in a majority, it would be this group, right? That's what we would assume. Teacher collected all the papers afterwards, counted them all up. Of the 120 students, two said yes. Just two. And we go, millennials, right? Just kidding. We go, seminary students? How could that be? What's the disconnect here? I, I'm, I want to make a distinction this morning, and, and I think it's a very important distinction. I think it's a biblical one. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's this idea of an inner man and an outer man. This inner person, this inner experience we have, and this outer person, this outer experience. He had notice how this professor did not phrase the question. He did not ask, um, do you know that, that God is loving? Or does God love sinners? He didn't ask the question that way. Had he asked it that way, we would again assume that a majority of the students would say, yes, I believe that. I, I think that's true, that God is love, that God loves sinners. But that's not the way he phrased the question. The question was very, very personal. It was about their personal experience with God. Do you believe that God loves you? That's an entirely different question. It's meant to get at that inner man, that inner person. It's not, do you know some theological fact? Can you answer sword drills well, correctly? But in your own personal experience, do you feel the unmerited love of God? Only two people said yes. Only two. Um, let's look at Paul here for a minute. Paul, our author, he's the one who's writing this book to Ephesians. And, and again, this distinction between the inner man and the outer man. Paul, in his early life, was a card-carrying Mr. Outer Man. From all appearances, he had it all together. He put his money in the right places. He was in the right spots. He was doing the right things. He was incredibly, incredibly moral. And, and simply put, if we had daughters, this is the kind of guy we would want our daughters to bring home to say, we're talking about marriage. You would be ecstatic if this guy looked like Paul in The Outer Man. But then something happens to Paul. He's walking down a road one day, and he has this experience with the resurrected and glorified Jesus. And something in Paul changes, but it's not the outer man. Paul doesn't become less moral throughout the New Testament. His outer man doesn't change. What changes? Paul is converted. It's his inner man. His beliefs, his core beliefs about Jesus. Yes, Jesus, God is loving, but now I've experienced God's love in a way that I can't comprehend, that blows my mind. He changes his inner man. What does this mean for us? What does this translate to us today? Here's a good outer man question. Does God forgive sins? Most of us have been around church long enough or around Christians long enough to go, yes, I, I, I believe that's true. That's a great outer man question. Here's, here's an inner man question. Do you believe that through the blood of Jesus Christ, that your sins of your past, the sins of your present, the sins of your future have been separated you 
from you as far as the east is from the west. Do you believe that? Or do you carry guilt and shame like luggage? And do they bear you down? And maybe in the outer man, you're generous with your time and your money, but inwardly, you're exhausted. You're guilt-ridden. And that's the real reason why you're generous. It's not because God's generous. It's because you feel bad, and you're trying to make yourself feel better. Or what about this one? Here's a great outer man question. Is God all-powerful? Is God good? We'd say, amen, pastor. Yes, that is true. But inwardly, are you anxious? In your inner man, do you sleep well at night when you think about your future, how you're going to provide for your family, what decisions your children are going to make? Do you lose sleep over that? And do you cope in any appropriate ways? Is that why you go to the cupboard for that second glass of fill in the blank? It's because you can't sleep without it and you are so tied up in knots on the inside. Your inner man is a wreck. Or do you believe in your inner man that God's got this? You're not in his peripheral vision. He's all-powerful and he's good. He's going to take care of you. You see that you see that distinction between our outer man and our inner man? If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of Christianity, at least in the south, it it's, it just kind of deals exclusively with the outer man. And a Christianity and a religion, that just deals with the outer man. How we look, how we appear, is a reduction of the gospel. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're anxious. Our inner man is in absolute turmoil. Is that just the way it's going to be? Is this as good as it gets? Is that part of the curse? Is that the life we have to endure Until Christ comes back, and what Paul tells us in this passage is, guess what? Here's the good news. No, your inner man can change too. And Paul knows from firsthand experience. We need to be changed in the inner and not just the outer. Jesus kind of drives this this screw in even tighter when he says, he's talking to Pharisees. People like Paul used to be. He says, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He who made the outside also made the inside. Both are important. So let's not reduce the gospel or Christianity just simply to the outer man. It involves the inner man, our experiences, our reality. And that's what we're going to address this morning. And and again, don't hear me saying that the outer man is not important. It is. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6 is about the outer man, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to look, how we're supposed to appear. But before he gets to the outer man, chapter 3, he's going to deal with the inner man, your personal reality, your experience with Jesus. And before we get to the outer, deal with the inner. Do you believe that God is forgiving? Do you believe that he is all-powerful in your very soul? I want to look at two things this morning, two things that, according to Paul, we need to experience not just in the outer man, but in our very souls, our inner man, on our insides. And the first is this, the love of Christ, and the second is the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are my two points, the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. First, the love of Christ. Look back with me at verse 18 and 19. Paul says that, 
that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He doesn't want this just to be a truth that we assent to, but something that has worked its way from our brains into our very souls, our very realities. He wants you to experience, not just know, but experience the love of Christ. Now, before we talk about Christ's love, let's consider ours for a moment. We can be loving people, and let's take the most loving person in this room, whoever that person may be. Spend enough time with that person. Walk in their circles, you will find the limits and the boundaries and the borders of that person's love. We all have borders. We all have limits to our love, how far we will go. We will say, we will love a person who does this, but if a person does this, we will go no further. Maybe if you find out somebody is not going to be a friend back to you or reciprocate love, what do we do? We shut them off. That's the limit of my love. Or if somebody hurts some, someone that is very dear to you, we'll say, Done. My love has reached its boundary, and it will go no further. What Paul here is telling us in this passage, kind of through figurative language, through hyperbole, is that the love of Christ is not like ours. Like the hymn says, it's vast, unmeasured, it's boundless, it's free. And to get this answer, we need to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the scripture as a whole. Go back to Genesis 3. The first people to mess everything up, Adam and Eve, our great parents. And what does God do in response to the rebellion? He restores them. And he will do the same to you. Paul says, know the heights of God's love. Fast forward to the book of Jonah and you hear about this nation of Assyria the atrocities they appor- that they performed against Israel are unspeakable. and They make ISIS look like circus clowns. And what does God do with that nation who reigned in terror for 250 years? God has pity. God offers them repentance. And Paul says, if he can save Ninevites, he can, be, he can offer you pity and he can offer you mercy. Know the depths of the love of Christ. Take Paul himself, who was a shameless narcissist, a self-promoter, while wearing this facade of, 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 of Judaism, of Christianity, of loving Yahweh. What does God do with self-promoters? He restores, and he forgives. And if he'll do that with Saul, Paul, he can do that with you and with me. What about Peter, who denied him? At a time where Jesus was at his lowest, three times, Peter denies Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He restores Peter. If he will have mercy on Adam and Eve, if he will have mercy on Nineveh, if he will have mercy on Saul's and Peter, won't he be merciful and kind to you? His love knows no boundaries, no limits. He will save the high, he will save the low, the old, the young, the self-promoter and the slacker, the Jew, the Gentile. His love knows no boundaries. And if you'll have, have mercy and have pity on people like Paul and Nineveh, he will have mercy with you and with me. Now, if at this point you're saying to yourself, bless your heart, Pastor. 
I don't know if there's really anything that good. Because all you and I have experienced is, is human love, and it has limitations. It's got boundaries. I don't really believe a love like that exists. If that's what you're thinking or you're feeling, boy, you are right on. You're right where you're supposed to be. And, and notice what Paul says next in verse 19 about this love of Christ. It is so rich. It is so big. It is so limitless. Verse 19, this love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. In other words, none of us in this room have enough synapses, have enough brain cells in our brains to fully grasp the love of Christ by ourselves. If you were here this morning and you think, yeah, this whole love of Christ thing, got it. Move on. Chop, chop. Next. If you think you've got it, you don't understand just how big the love of Christ is. No mind can comprehend it. So if you're thinking this morning, I don't know if a love like that exists, that's what you're supposed to feel. This, this love of Christ is so big, we're supposed to get hung up on it. We're supposed to go, then this is paradigm shifting. Then this is new. This is something I've never experienced before. You're right on. But Paul also says this. He says in order to understand it, to grasp it, to truly comprehend it, not only are your brains limited, but you don't have the strength to. You don't have the ability to. You actually need the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. You actually need God himself to change you, to overhaul you, so that you can understand just how much he loves and cares for you. Think about it this way. I've been meddling in computers lately. had an old laptop. It was running slow, running out of memory, and finally it just crashed. And so I thought... Rather than sending it in, rather than buying a new one, let me see if I can just overhaul it myself. So I took it apart, took all the guts out, put new stuff in it, and lo and behold, YouTube works. It was right. The tutorial I was watching, it fixed the computer. But if you look at it from the outward appearance, nothing's changed outwardly. But it's been strengthened from the inside. It's got new guts, a new powerhouse, new abilities And when Christians are converted, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need His strength, His enabling power, just to understand how much we are loved. You can't understand it on your own. You need help. You need new guts. Let's consider it this way. Let's imagine um, you're, you're done with documentaries. You're done with pictures. You want to go see the Grand Canyon. And so you've narrowed it down to three tour guides. First one has his Ph.D. in the Grand Canyon. Never been, but he's got his Ph.D. in it. Catalog full of pictures. Knows the topography. Knows the great places to go see and visit because he's read up on it. And you go, not the best option, but not a bad option. Option one. Option two knows everything the first tour guide knows. But this guy's actually been to the Grand Canyon. He's taken people to the edge. He has shown them the vastness the breadth, the height, the depth of the Grand Canyon. He's done it a couple times, and you go, ah, a little bit better option. But the third is different. Not only does the third tour guide know everything the first and the second knows, but if you'll pay a little extra, this guy will actually take you into the canyon. So you're not going to stand on the edge, and you're not going to watch. You're not going to spectate. You're actually going to experience the Grand Canyon. You're going to descend And what you thought was a little creek down at the bottom is a raging river. And the walls that you thought were maybe a couple hundred feet tall are thousands of feet tall. 
and you experience it in a way firsthand that you never have experienced it before, not a trick question, which tour guide are you going to pick? If money's not an option, the third, right? It's the third. What Paul here is telling us is, is, is that we're, we're not just to know the love of Christ, we're to experience it firsthand. Smell it, taste it, see it, and believe it more than we believe anything else. And we have a God. And we have one who has perfectly experienced the love of the Father. He said so. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples, as the Father has loved me. This is Jesus speaking. The Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. And how do we know that Jesus really, in his very soul, believed that the Father loved him? That he truly experienced the love of his Father? Well, would you go to Calvary willingly, obediently, if you thought that your Father was not all-powerful, that he was not good, that he didn't care for you? Would you go willingly? No, you wouldn't. But Jesus was so convinced of the Father's love for him. There was no discrepancy between his outer man and his inner man. They were perfectly matched. No gaps, unlike you and me. So convinced of his father's love for him and his security that he went willingly, like a lamb before the slaughter, to die on Calvary for us. And in the scriptures, that is our guide. That is our man. And as he experienced it, so are we. This deep love of God that knows no boundaries. Um, second point is this. We were just experienced the love of Christ, but we're also meant to experience the power of the Spirit. Let me illustrate it this way first. I'm going to make marriage a metaphor. And if you're not married, it doesn't matter. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but wouldn't we all agree that marriage is both an act and a process? Right? Marriage is an act and a process. Here's what I mean. When you get married and you, in the eyes of the state, are declared husband and wife, and in the eyes of God, does your status change? In two days, are you more married than you were a day ago? No, you're just married, right? Your status does not increase. Your status does not decrease. You are married. Blanket statement, right? Marriage is an act. You are declared husband and wife. Now, as, as most of us know who are married, in that first year of marriage, do you act like a perfect husband? Do you act like a perfect wife? If you've been married for a long time, you look back on that first year and you just go, we had no idea what we were doing. And I'm so sorry. Though we were married in the eyes of the state and in the eyes of God, inwardly, were we acting like husbands and wives should? Are we still acting that way? No. Why? Because marriage is also a process. One writer says we get married so that we can spend the rest of our lives figuring out how to be married. And the same is true for Christianity. There's an act. There's a declaration. You are a son and a daughter of the Most High. And that status never changes. You're not more saved today than you were 10 years ago. That status stays on a plateau. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're adopted. But like marriage, sanctification, growth, this life in Christ is a process. 
We are not the people we were 10 years ago. We're not the people that we're going to be 10 years from now, right? We are learning how to be sons and daughters. We are learning how to obey. We are learning how to grow. And we're getting better at it. But we're not perfect yet. Salvation is an act, but it's also a process. I like what one writer says. He says, we are becoming, we are in the process of becoming what we already are. You get that? We're in the process of becoming what we already are. God has declared you a son and a daughter. But we're going to spend the rest of our life learning how to act like a son, learning how to act like a daughter. And and here's the language that Paul uses. In, In Ephesian language, look at verse 19. This is what Paul is getting at, this process. Look at the second part. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's an Ephesian way of saying is that what he is asking for on behalf of them and you and me is that we are all in the process of becoming more like Christ. Not just outwardly. Not just in the outer man and the inner man. We're being filled. And who's doing that filling? Paul's saying that is from the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that is changing your insides. Your guts, your appetites, your beliefs, your experiences. That is what you're meant to experience. The power of the Holy Spirit changing that appetite. Changing that desire. And what is he changing us into? He says the fullness of God. It kind of sounds funny. Being filled with the fullness of God. What does that mean? Well, in short, the fullness of God is not a thing. It's a person. The fullness of God is a person. Paul would write to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 19. For in him, speaking about Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The power of the Holy Spirit is given unto you, unto believers. And what is he going to do when he takes up residence in your very soul, on your very insides? He is going to change you. What is he changing us into? The very image of Christ. The man who had no gap between his outer man and his inner man. He's not just going to change our our behaviors, our outer man, but he's going to change our insides. Who we are. And again... That's what we're meant to experience, not know. That's what we're meant to experience. And wouldn't it be great if we got to a point where as a church, we're sitting across from each other and the conversation isn't, what do you believe? What do you think is true? Well, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, we can do this church thing together. And what if it was more like this? Where have you seen the power of the Holy Spirit work in your life? In other words, it was so powerful, it was so supernatural, only he gets credit for it. And what if the other person said, well, I was a slave to alcohol. And by his power, he robbed me of that appetite. I don't even want to do it anymore. And I'm so thankful. And now I love him more. And now I know he is all-powerful. Now I know he is loving and kind. I know he is forgiving. Why? Because I've experienced it through the power of the Holy Spirit. What about you? Like Paul, I was a shameless narcissist. I wasn't about God's kingdom, although I was in church and 
pastor and teacher. But he robbed me of it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, that desire went away. And I, I can't explain it. It was supernatural. And now I don't even want to do it. I want to give Christ the glory. Isn't God good? Isn't he powerful? Isn't he forgiving? Yeah. Amen. You want to tell other people about it? Try and stop me. What if church started looking like that? Not just a bunch of people who know a lot of things about God, but but a group of people who have experienced the depths of Christ's love, people who have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, changing their very insides, their very guts. Now, I want to close with this. It's where we go from here because we still really haven't answered the question, how? How do people change? Well, Paul is going to tell us and show us in this passage. Look at verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Paul here is saying is we need to be experts. We need to get into the habit of, we need to be good at asking. And maybe you notice this already, but kind of zoom out from this passage. What, what are these verses? We call it a doxology, but what also is it? It's a prayer. For this reason, again, verse 14, for this reason, I bow the knee. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. He is praying for himself. He's praying for the church. He is asking the Lord for things. And, and what I'm about to say is going to sound very, very funny coming from a Presbyterian minister, but a lot of us need to hear this. Some of us need to put down our Bible. Your theology is headed in the right direction. Is it perfect? No, but you know theology. You know a lot of truths about God, about His character. And you know a lot about your weaknesses, but inwardly, you haven't experienced the depths of Christ's love. You don't feel loved by Him. Inwardly, you feel guilty. Inwardly, you've kind of given up on changing yourself and changing others. This is just the way life is. You haven't experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. But you know the Holy Spirit is powerful. You know it. So it sounds funny for a Presbyterian minister to say, put down the Bible, put down the podcast, put down the self-help book, put down one means of grace only to pick up another. Asking, praying, making petitions like Paul is doing in this very passage. He is praying to God, change us. Help our minds to comprehend the love of Christ. Show us, O Spirit, your power changes in our very insides. Put down one means of grace to pick up another. We need to get good at asking. And, and so it might look like this for you or for me. It's to say, O Spirit. Interestingly enough, Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit reside? On our insides. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, his sign and seal upon you is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is no coincidence that that's where we need change the most, on our insides, in our inner man. That is no coincidence that that is the same place where the Holy Spirit resides. And so we might say or ask something like this, Oh, Spirit, I know that you're loving But I don't feel it. I don't feel it on my insides. I know it. But somehow that information hasn't gotten from my brain into my heart, into my very reality. Spirit, I think that's your job description. 
Can you move it there? I know there's forgiveness for sinners, but I feel so guilty. Can you help me to feel forgiven? Not just know that I'm forgiven, but feel forgiven? Boy, that is a courageous and humble prayer. Let me end with this. I I used this illustration a long time ago, but it it fits this morning. It's it's a parable, and I forget who came up with it. It's a modern parable about... uh, Man is on a plane, and the plane is in a nosedive. Engines are gone. Doom is imminent. The plane is going down. There's no question about it. And on the wall in front of this, this man is a parachute. And boy, does this man know a lot about this parachute. Who manufactured it? What materials they used? How much weight that parachute can carry? But at this point, what good does that information do that man? It's great to know those things. It really is. But we want to grab that man by the shoulders and say, what? Jump, you fool. What good is that information going to do you? What good is that parachute going to do you if you're not using it and letting it carry you safely to the ground? And that's where I say, for us, for a season, it might be good for us to put down the Bible and go, okay, I know God is loving. We just heard it. More than my mind can comprehend. Forgiving. His limitless power. And now we need to get in the posture of asking. We need to jump. For a season. Don't hear me saying that you can stop reading your Bible. I said, for a season. The other means of grace. Asking. Praying. Lord, change me. And if you don't know how to do that, that's okay. It's hard to do. And it's difficult to do. Would you let one of us know we'd love to do that with you? Why? Because we're perfect? No. Not yet. Not until Christ returns. But in the meantime, we've seen his power work. We've seen what he can do. We've started to venture down into that Grand Canyon to experience the depths of the love of Christ. And we want you to experience that as well. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, for this good news, for the richness of this passage, for the promises that you give us. Oh man, how unworthy are we. And how great it is to hear that we don't have to reside in the outer man. Forgive us for doing so. And instead, as we come now to this meal and the week ahead, help us to be experts at asking that in faith, We would ask you for things that only you can provide. Show us, remind us, impress upon us again your love. Remind us that we're weak, but at the same time, remind us of the great power of the Holy Spirit who resides in our very bones. And do it so that we can boast in you, that we might speak of your power and be your true church. And we ask this in the matchless name of Christ, our brother. Amen.